So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. For over 25 years, my guest, Gene Becker, served as the chief of staff for former President George H.W. Bush. Her new book, The Man I Knew, provides an intimate glimpse of the 41st president and the ups and downs of his post-presidency, revealing his heart, humor, and wisdom. Gene Becker, welcome back to With a Barkoff, because you did the very first episode of this podcast with George P. Bush around your book, Pearls of Wisdom, and now you come back for the highly anticipated The Man I Knew. Uh, So welcome back. Mark, it is so fun to be back with you. It's just fun to hear your voice, and and I've missed you during the pandemic. Likewise, Gene, and and I got I, I got back in touch with you in a sense by reading this book, which I so anticipated after our last conversation. But so so you worked as chief of staff to former President George H. W. Bush for a quarter of a century. Talk about how that came about. Well, it, it, it was almost an accident, and he never really officially hired me to be his chief of staff. He swears he does not remember this conversation. So at, during the White House years, I worked for Barbara Bush. I was one of her deputy press secretaries. And when he lost the election in 1992, she asked me to come to Houston with them to help her with her memoirs. I was her researcher and her editor, and she wrote the book herself. And about the time we were done with that book, it was March of 1994, President Bush's first post-White House chief of staff, a woman named Rosa Maria, retired. And President Bush called me into his office, and I'd gotten to know him a little bit in the past year. I, I helped, I worked from a card table in his kitchen. That's how we became friends. They put There was no room for me in the office of George Bush, so they put me at a card table in his office kitchen. And we started visiting over coffee and when he would come get a glass of milk for lunch. And we sort of became friends. So when Rose left, he asked me if I would stay on until he could find a new chief of staff. He says, I have no idea who to hire. I just need to think about this. Barbara thinks you could be really helpful and and just, you know, for a couple of months, he asked me to keep the seat warm. I told him, Mark, I said, I don't know how to run an office. I don't know how to be anyone's boss. I've never been the boss. My background was journalism. I was a newspaper reporter. I said, I don't know how to do a budget. I don't know how to do any of this. That's what I told him. Great job interview, right? And he said, well, just stay until Labor Day. If you could stay through Labor Day, I promise you by Labor Day, I will have found someone to be my next chief of staff. I said, deal. We never talked about it again. We just got so busy and life got so crazy. And 20 some years later, I said, sir, I've been living in fear. 
for 20 years that you're going to walk into my office one day and say, oh, Gene, I've hired a chief of staff. You're free to go. And he said, what the heck are you talking about? And he swears he doesn't remember the original conversation. But so that's how I became his chief of staff. On a very long interim basis. On a very long (laughs) interim basis. That's right. (laughs) So what is it like to be the chief of staff for a former president? You know, it's a roller coaster ride. Uh, At least it was to be George Herbert Walker Bush's chief of staff. Uh, He became, after a year of sort of licking his wounds and trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his post-presidency, I think he woke up one day, Mark, and literally thought to himself, I'm back. Because then he, we were just off and running for the next 25 years. Uh, he became very active in a lot of different philanthropy groups, uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center here in Houston, Points of Light, building the George Bush School of Government Public Service at Texas A&M. And then certainly later when he partnered with President Clinton, disaster relief, he just, he started jumping out of airplanes. Oh my gosh, the man had more energy than anyone I knew. And we had a very small staff. There were eight of us, three of whom were part-time. So it was a wild and crazy ride, but a lot of fun. But before he got to the point where he felt he was back, uh, he had a difficult time. The first chapter of your, of your book is titled The Morning After, which recounts the first chapter of George Bush's post-presidency, a very difficult time in his life. You have President Bush talking to a friend who has been fired in the job in that, in that chapter. And he says, I know how you feel. I was fired by the American people. It hurt. Mm-hmm. What was his state of mind after losing the presidency? He was very quiet. Uh, and I did not know him well yet. Looking back on it, if I'd known him as well in 1993 as I got to know him, I think I would have even been more struck by just how quiet he was. I mean, just imagine that. I mean, when he said to that friend, and this was a couple of years later when this friend was just bemoaning how embarrassed he was. He was embarrassed that he'd been fired from a rather high profile hospitality job in Kennebunkport. And he said to President Bush, I'm embarrassed to go out. I feel like everyone's talking about me. And he just looked at him and he said, Rich, I was fired by the American people. I know how you feel. And you just have to get on with life. And I and I think that's why it took him a while, Mark, that first year to lick his wounds. He It was devastating to him that the American people decided that he did not deserve a second term. So number one, he just had to deal with the pain of losing. And number two, he had to decide what to do with the rest of his life. When you lose an election, unlike when you finish your second term, There's just a lot of uncertainty. You really haven't thought about it. You really haven't thought through what that next act in your life will be. So he took a lot of time. He took his time, which I think was smart. 
instead of jumping right into the fray, he took the time to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He even wrote himself a memo. He took Mrs. Bush on a cruise, I call it the love boat, in February of 93, such a misguided idea. I, can you imagine being on a princess cruise in the Caribbean in February of 1993, and here comes George and Barbara Bush, who had just <laughs> left the White House a month earlier? I mean, that, you know, so funny. Um, but on that cruise, he wrote a memo to himself, which I put in the book about what his post-presidency would look like. And he, he sort of went through the list of do's and don'ts. I do want to do this. I don't want to do this. And it's a really revealing memo uh, about how his mind was just processing all this. And then again, as I say in the book, all of a sudden one day he's like, okay, I'm ready. I got it figured out. Let's go. Was there one thing that got him over that hurdle, Gina, or was it just a matter of time before he would come to a, a new phase in his life where he accepted his defeat and moved on? I think that's a great question, Mark, and I think it's a combination of a couple things. I do think time heals all wounds, and he had had a lot of practice, unfortunately, with speed bumps in life. He'd been shot down during World War II and had lost both of his crew members. That was, even though he was only 20 years old, that that was another time when he did, was very introspective about what the rest of his life was gonna look like. He and Mrs. Bush lost their daughter, Robin, to leukemia when she was three years old. He'd had a couple of political ups and downs. Watergate was devastating to him because he worked for President Nixon. And then he lost the election. So he sort of had some practice on how to deal with disappointment. And he's truly one of the most re resilient people you and I will ever know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think part of it was just finding his way. Uh, and again, he had too much left to give. He liked people too much. You can't keep him down for long. So that was number one. Number two, I do think George and Jeb running for governor of their respective states in 1994 is what really brought him back. He was so proud of them and so excited that they were entering the political arena. And what he would tell you, Mark, he maybe did tell you this. He probably did tell you this when you interviewed him for your great book, The Last Republicans. He realized that if he had won the 1992 election, George and Jeb would have had to have put their political ambitions on hold. I, they probably would not have run for governor of Texas and Florida in 1994. They would have had to wait until their dad was out of office. And President Bush was very uh, philosophical about that. He truly believed all things happen for a reason and that it was his son's time to take the stage. Mm. And it helped him definitely get over the 1992 defeat. So 1994, as you mentioned, George W. Bush and Jeb Bush both run for the governorships of their states, Texas and Florida, respectively. George W. Bush wins. 
Jeb loses, right. uh, only to win four years later in 1998. By that time, George W. Bush is looking like the lead candidate for the Republican nomination for president and ultimately becomes the president of the United States in 2000, which you write about extensively in the book. So you not only work at that point, Gene, for, for the, the 41st president, but you work for the father of the 43rd president. What were those years like for President Bush, being the father of the the incumbent president of the United States? Um, in some ways, their life did not change. And in some ways, their life turned upside down. In the very beginning, my biggest issue was all the former President Bush 41 people who wanted back into the White House or wanted to be an ambassador or wanted some kind of job in 43's administration. And they all came to President Bush through me. And that was complicated because the new president had his own team, had his own friends. It just wasn't possible for all the old 41 people were not going to be part of this new administration. And it fell to me to deliver that news. Um, Ron Kaufman, a longtime friend of President Bush's who did, did a lot of politics for him, told me one day, you're becoming known as the consigliere of the Bush family, which of course is a mafia term. It's from, that's what Robert Duvall was in, from, in The, the Godfather. Godfather. Sure. Yeah. And Ron says, I don't think you've left any horse's heads in anyone's bed yet, <laughs> but but he said, you are getting this reputation as being the bearer of bad news. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you, Rod. So that's how it sort of affected me. However, the biggest way it affected me is having to deal with President Bush, 41, taking personally every negative thing that is said, that was said about his son. Oh my mm. God. He, you know, you, he, you could say the worst thing about him, a reporter or an author could write something very negative about George H.W. Bush. He didn't care. You said something against his son and it, he took it so personally. And many times during those eight years, I would send a message to the White House and say, usually to Andy Carr, who was the chief of staff for the first six years, the White House chief of staff, I would say if the president could possibly call his father today and peel him <laughs> off the ceiling, I would personally be grateful. And he always would. The president would, you know, would find time to call his dad and just say, Dad, how are you doing? And he would say the same thing to him that I would. Turn TV off. <laughs> Quit reading the news. Stop it. <laughs> but he couldn't help himself. <laughs> what did that relationship look like uh, while George W. Bush was in the White House? That's, a, that's an eight-year period from 2001 to 2009. What did it look like between the two men? You know, Mark, I think you're one of many people, historians, that would be you, journalists, who are very disappointed about a decision I made. I let you all down. It was one of the smartest things I ever did. When the two of them talked on the phone to each other, I got up and left the room. I felt it was none of my business what they talked about. 
And there were times when President Bush would motion me to sit down. He says, no, 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 stay and listen to this. And I didn't. I left the room. I felt I owed that to the President of the United States. And over the years, a number of historians, I'm fairly certain you're one of them, has asked me, just tell me about what they used to talk about. I don't know. I, I, le I left the room. I may know a thing or two. I'm still not going to tell you. Um, I feel like that's 43's story to tell. But for the most part, the relationship was one between father and son. Mm. A father's undying love for his son and certainly pride in his son. Uh, he wrote him a very emotional letter after 9-11, which I put in the book, about just how proud he was of how he felt the president, George W., had helped the nation through 9-11. So much a reflection of, of George Bush and his commitment to family. Yeah, the Bush absolutely. Family was, is, is so close, and that's a, that's a perfect example of it. In, in the book's chapter, The Odd Couple, <laughs> you capture the unlikely relationship between President Bush and President Clinton. And you write... The two of them had long visits about world affairs, caught up on mutual friends and heads of state they knew, and enjoyed each other's company. Mrs. Bush would come to believe that her husband was in many ways the father Bill Clinton never had. You saw that friendship close up. How did it come about? You know, I for the matchmaker, first of all, was the 43rd president of the United States. On Christmas Day, 2004, a horrible tsunami hit South Asia. And it was sort of all hands on deck. It was one of the biggest natural disasters on record in the history of the world. And the U.S. government was sending a lot of support. But the private sector, the, pres the president asked his dad and President Clinton to raise private sector money so that nonprofits like AmeriCares, Doctors Without Borders, Catholic Charities, they're all headed to South Asia, but they needed money. They needed money to do what they needed to do. So the two of them readily agreed and they met in DC and we did a series of public service announcements and they did some interviews and started raising a lot of money. And then the president asked them if they would travel to South Asia to represent him, to meet with the heads of state, and just to let that part of the world know America's got your back. And they said, okay. And I say in the book, Mark, they left on that trip as colleagues who had a, a joint mission, a common purpose in mind, and they came home best friends. And here, mm -hmm. here is my theory. They, President Bush had not yet been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but we were beginning to, he was becoming more and more frail. We were beginning to be a little worried about him. He was such a great athlete his entire life. And all of a sudden he started slowing down. He was a little unsteady on his feet. Um, sometimes had a hard time getting out of a chair. So I put a bug in President Clinton's ear and Tom Frechette, who was President Bush's aide who traveled with us, we need to stay out of the camera shop. 
And so we put a bug in President Clinton's ear to keep an eye on him, to maybe help him down the steps of a plane, help him on and off helicopters, but to be discreet because President Bush was a little sensitive about this. And President Clinton totally embraced that job. He was so protective of him. He gave him the only bed on the plane. I did my part by staying up all night and playing a card game called Oh Hell with Him. That was how <laughs> I served my country. But the flip side of this, so President Clinton, he was he was terrific. And he just kept an eye on him. The flip side of this, though, is we had a huge scheduled mark. I think we, we, we visited four countries and had a lot of events in every country. And President Bush is the one who kept President Clinton on time. And, and he also would say things like, I remember we were in Sri Lanka and there are these two men standing by the side of the road. They were on our schedule. They'd been there for four hours waiting for us. They had developed a water purification system. So Sri Lanka had clean water and they're explaining it to the two presidents standing on the side of the road. It was unbearably hot. And President Clinton starts talking about some other water purification system he'd once seen somewhere else in Africa and going on and on. And President Bush said, Bill, quit talking. These two men have been standing here for hours waiting to explain what they've done. You need to quit talking and listen to them. And President Clinton, yes, sir. And there were a couple of times, I remember that <laughs> there were a couple of times we were running late and, and I would tell President Clinton's staff, you need to pull him out of this. He was talking, talking, and it says, you need to go pull him out. We're running late. And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't do that. So President Bush would go tap him on the shoulder and say, Bill, get in the car. It's time to go. Yes, sir. So it that's where this father-son relationship began. And it was just sort of interesting to watch the two of them. Uh, President Clinton had a lot of respect for President Bush. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was interesting. And they enjoyed each other's company. They knew a lot of the same people. And, you know, they would gossip about heads of state that they both knew. Not going to tell you anything they said. But they just, you know, they had a, they, they maybe politically disagreed, but they had a lot of common interest. And I, and I can't help but to believe that President Clinton was predisposed to liking George H.W. Bush because of the remarkable letter that uh, George H.W. Bush left for Bill Clinton yeah. upon leaving the White House. Talk about the contents of that letter, which seems all the more remarkable in 2021. Well, what he said to him, which was amazing, um, it, nothing like this had ever been done before. And I'm just going to read it to you because it's very short, rather than me mm. summarize. Uh, it's right in the beginning of the book. He said, Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. He wrote this on the day that he left office. I wish you great happiness here. I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit. There will be very tough times made even more difficult by criticism that you may not think is fair. 
I'm not a very good one to give advice, but don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this. I wish you well. I wish your family well. Your success is now our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. Amazing. Amazing. But it's it just incredible if you look at how divided we are today and how impossible bipartisanship seems. It was natural for George H.W. Bush. He, he under, and, and, and that is one of the reasons why the timing of this book, and it's a coincidence, this wasn't planned for it to come out in the middle of this divisive period. But I do think it should be mandatory reading for every member <laughs> of Congress who have forgotten you put your country first. You don't worry about midterm elections. You don't worry about the presidential election that is still three and a half years away. It, it amazes me, Mark, how they all openly talk about it. They all talk about, well, because of the midterm election, we, no, you don't, you, you do what's best for your country. And one of the things about this book, it's not the reason why I wrote it. I wasn't smart enough to realize this until I was about halfway through writing it. He really left as a blueprint on how to live life. Mm. And what you're talking about is the best example in the book. If President Bush, I've been saying to people, when you die, if you want someone to say, well, that was a life well lived, well, then read this book because President mm -hmm. Bush taught us how to live a life well lived and how to be gracious in defeat, how to uh, find the best in everybody, including the man who defeated him in 1992, and certainly how to put your country first. It's a great mm -hmm. lesson. It's a great lesson to be learned. And that letter has become has become iconic, I think, in our mm. culture. There is a cameo in your book from George Clooney. <laughs> and it gives me gives a sense of the many perks <laughs> of the job of being the chief of staff to George H.W. Bush. Talk about how you came to meet George Clooney. Oh, my gosh. That was maybe the biggest perk of all. <laughs> so if this is so George Bush and I there's a whole chapter called I have an idea and I say with humor sort of joking it was the four scariest words the man would ever say to me I have an idea and I and sometimes I just want to crawl under my desk because it would be I'm going to start jumping out of airplanes Gene let's look into that I'm like what what are you talking about or I'm going to go back to Chichijima, where he was shot down during World War II. Uh, so this George Clooney was maybe my favorite idea. So what a lot of Americans don't know is a couple weeks after Hurricane Katrina, another hurricane, Hurricane Rita, basically chewed up the rest of the Louisiana coast and part of the Texas coast. It didn't get any attention Katrina was really sucking the air out of the room. And there was a little town called Cameron, Louisiana, that just got battered by Hurricane Rita. And a man from um, 
Cameron named Richard Sluschlog, cold called the office and said, we need help. We need help. And what he really wanted was their hospital had been destroyed. And he said, nobody is going to come back. The people who live here are not going to come back unless they have access to health care. And he said, if President Bush could just help us raise the money to rebuild the emergency room. And he knew that Cameron had a special place in President Bush's heart because when he was in the offshore oil business, President Bush's oil rigs were off the coast of Cameron. So he used to come to Cameron to go visit his oil rigs. So President Bush said, of course, we're going to do this, Gene. And off we go. And we raised $2 million to to rebuild the emergency room in Cameron. And it's a week before Christmas. And we're going to take the check to Cameron, deliver the check, break ground for the emergency room. The high school marching band is coming. The governor's coming. It's going to be a lovely event. President Bush is looking at the schedule and he says, Gene, this is really boring. This is a boring event. I said, what are you talking about? This is not boring. I said, sir, a former president is going to this little town with $2 million the week before Christmas. Come on. He says, I have an idea. He says, let's invite George Clooney to go with us. He says, Barr and I have fallen in love with this TV show called ER. And George Clooney <laughs> is one of the big stars on this show. He says, get it, Gene. ER, emergency room. It's perfect to take the star of ER to break ground <clears throat> for this new emergency room. Well, Mark, here's the problem. They're watching ER in reruns on TNT. <laughs> I don't even think it was on television anymore. George Clooney, I know George Clooney was long gone, long gone. He was already making all the ocean movies. And I tried to explain this to President Bush. I said, sir, George Clooney is a major movie star. He's no longer on ER. And he says, oh, no, no, no. You're not right about that. They're on every night. Barr and I watch it every night. Trying to describe re the concept of reruns to a former president is complicated. Um, and I said, George Clooney is not coming. He's a major movie star. We don't know how to get a hold of him. I'm pretty sure his politics are to the left of you. Why on earth do you think George Clooney is going to come to Cameron, Louisiana with you the week before Christmas? Well, he did his homework. He Googled George Clooney. I love that he did this. And lo and behold, the producer of all those ocean movies is President Bush's good friend, Jerry Weintraub. I had no idea. He comes into my office. He says, you didn't tell me Jerry Weintraub knew George Clooney. I said, I didn't know that Jerry Weintraub knew George Clooney. He says, I'm calling Jerry. And guess what? George Clooney came. <laughs> he came. <laughs> Weintraub came. And, you know, I asked him, we're flying home. Did I go on this trip? Yes, of course I did. And I asked George flying home. President Bush was asleep. Jerry Weintraub's asleep. Oh my gosh, I have George Clooney to myself for about 30 minutes. It's a rather short flight. But I asked him, I said, why did you come? Why did you do this? He said it touched him 
that President Bush was trying to help this little town. He said all the attention is in New Orleans. All the celebrities, all the media. He says, I feel terrible for what's going on in New Orleans. But he said they're getting a lot of attention and a lot of help. And the fact that President Bush is trying to help this little town that no one's ever heard of, he said, it touched my heart. So I, I said, yes. So how cool is that? Uh, very cool. <laughs> you begin this book with another wonderful story about a rumor that President Bush's longtime friend, Prince Bandar from Saudi Arabia, was dead. And it's one of those stories you can't make up, uh, but it, it, is, it so exemplifies... <laughs> President Bush, uh, uh, tell that story, Jean. It is the day I decided to write a book. I, I truly decided that day I got to write a book. So Prince Bandar was the Saudi ambassador to the United States for something like 30 years. He was the ambassador all during President Bush's presidency, I think all during George W.'s presidency. By this time, he was back in Saudi Arabia. He actually is heading up the equivalent of the Saudi CIA. And I got a call that he had not been seen in public for months. The, the, the caller wanted to know if we had any information. Had President Bush talked to him? And the answer was no. And I was told that they're fairly certain the Syrians had assassinated him. The Syrians were really angry at Bandar for a couple of reasons. And uh, so they asked me if I would call the CIA. We always had a CIA point of contact assigned to us. So I called the CIA and they confirmed that they were chasing these rumors and trying to get as much information as they could. They did not know for sure, but they suspected it was true. So finally, I waited as long as I could, but the news was breaking in Europe. So I told President Bush it was really hard to tell him because he loved Bandar. And he said, well, did you try to call him? Did you try to call Bandar? Well, Mark, the answer to that would be no. I did not try to call Bandar. First of all, I would never, ever call Prince Bandar anyway. And he said, well, let's get him on the phone. So I told President Bush's aide, a young man named Jim Appleby, to get Prince Bandar on the phone. And Jimmy looked at me like I was crazy. He said, did you not tell him what's going on? I said, yes, I did. He would like to try to call him. Well, two minutes, two, really five seconds later, Jimmy yells into the office, Prince Bandar on line one. And President Bush literally picks up the phone and says, Bandar, George Bush. Dead or alive? Everybody here thinks you're dead. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he looked at me and whispered, he's alive. And I said, yeah, I sort of got that. And anyway, Bandar <laughs> tells him that the Syrians were after him, and he knew it. He was basically underground. He says, I'm safe. They're not going to find me. Don't worry about me. Uh, I did wonder why he answered his cell phone. That maybe was not a good idea. Maybe that was before that technology existed. But he said, don't worry about me, Mr. President. Thank you for calling. I'm good. So he gets off the phone, Mark, and he looked at me and he said, Gene, this is a very good lesson for you. If there's ever confusion about whether someone is dead or alive, the first thing you do is you try calling them. 
And if they answer the phone, they're alive. <laughs> well, you know, Mark, he has a point, you know. And then he, he we're sitting, we're actually sitting on his golf cart and we're in Kennebunkport. And with that, he races back to the house for lunch. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I got to write a book. You really, you can't make this up. So a couple hours later, I feel bad. I did call Secretary Baker. I called General Scowcroft. All the people who were concerned that Bandar was dead, I told them. Um, but a couple hours later, I answer the phone and it's the CIA. And the woman said, Gene, just circling back to you. I'm so sorry. We still don't have good intel on this. We are convinced he's dead. So you might want to go ahead and tell him. I took a deep breath and I said, yeah, Bandar is actually alive. And she said, and how would you know that? I said, because President Bush called him on his cell phone and he answered the phone <laughs> and confirmed that he was alive. And there was this pause and she said, we need to put that man back on payroll. <laughs> you don't get to be president of the United States without sagacious wisdom. Like if, if you're confused as to whether a person's alive or dead, call them. That's just that's marvelous. Nobody else. Of course, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, my guess is of all the people who were trying to figure out he was dead or alive, it's possible President Bush is the only one who had his cell phone number. And... And, you know, I'm not sure who all could have called him, but it's amazing wherever Bandar was, it's amazing. He answered the phone. <laughs> I've had the great pleasure of being around you and President Bush on many occasions. And, and there was just a wonderful chemistry between the two of you. And I think it was rooted in the, the values you shared and in, in your senses of humor, which were so similar. And part of it is that you, neither of you took yourself particularly seriously. And there's a story at the end of the book, Gene, that I just loved about this very serendipitous Friday night when President Bush asked you to go to Central Market. I wonder if you could relate that story. Okay, first of all, you're saying that I, that we shared the same sense of humor is the nicest thing maybe anyone's ever said to me, Mark Updegrove, because I, President Bush had such a great sense of humor. Um, so it's Friday. It's actually Friday afternoon. I'm having lunch with them. It's right before Christmas. I think it's the Friday before Christmas. It is pouring down rain in Houston. It started cold and raining. I had lunch with the Bushes. It was the last time I was going to see them before we went our separate ways for the holidays. And my plan for that Friday, cold, rainy Friday afternoon, go back to the office, tie up loose ends, go home, crash, watch Christmas movies. I was very excited. So as we're leaving the restaurant, President Bush says, hey, Gene, Barr and I are going to go to that new grocery store called Central Market. Everyone's talking about it. It apparently is the biggest grocery store in town. Well, Mark, this is a little bit like them watching ER on TNT. I think Central Market had been open for a year. They just hadn't gotten around to going yet. I had been to Central Market. It is huge. It is a huge grocery store. I had no interest in going with them. And so, as I said in the book, 20 minutes later, I pull into the parking lot of Central Market. I found it impossible to say no 
to either one of them. They just thought it'd be fun if I went with them. I'm like, all right. So off we go to Central Market. It's such a random story, but it just... <laughs> It just was so them. So we get in there, and President Bush is going to go pick out some cheese. And Mrs. Bush wants to walk through the whole grocery store. She gets a cart. She gets a big grocery cart. And she told, I was going to go with her. And she said, you go with George. He will. It will take him forever to pick out cheese. I can walk this entire store while he picks out cheese. You go with him and make him make some decisions. I'm like, okay. So I go with him. He, he picks out some cheese and crackers for their weekend television viewing. And she's nowhere to be found. So the Secret Service find her through their radios and let her know that he's ready to go. So here she comes, the largest grocery store in Houston, maybe Texas, and there is one sweet potato in the middle of her cart. That's all she had. <laughs> We're talking 45 minutes. She's been walking through the store. So I must have given her a rather odd look because she looked at me and says, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking that this sweet potato is too big for just George and me. Well, you know what, Mark? That is not what I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking, you walk through this huge store and you, you're going to buy one sweet potato. It, it just was such a funny, dear moment. And we get to the checkout with his cheese, her sweet potato. The lines are really long. It's a Friday before Christmas. And people are just flabbergasted when George and Barbara Bush get in line. And so I said to them, why don't you all go? I will stay in line and pay for your cheese and your sweet potato and bring it over to the house. Well, they absolutely not. They stood the line and President Bush bought me a poinsettia, I might add. And, it, you know, and as I said in the book, I love that you brought up that story. It's sort of a, it's an odd little story but it's 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 those kind of things that I remember the most about my 25 years with them. George Clooney was nice, but going to Central Market with them and her buying that sweet potato, God, I love those two people. They weren't that they you know <laughs> they just they just were they had no idea how special they were, and that's what made them special. They had no idea. You write that President Bush was not only your boss, he was your mentor, your friend, and your biggest cheerleader. What is the principal lesson you drew from your years with George Herbert Walker Bush? A couple of things. Um, one of the things I learned from him is to think big. He's one of the biggest thinkers I ever knew. And... Uh, Mrs. Bush used to use a quote, you, you, you know, you've got to take your shot at life and if you miss, it's okay. But if you don't take the shot, you will never know if you maybe made it. And President Bush in particular, I would say high school marching band, he would say George Clooney. So, <laughs> you know, he taught me to think big, to think outside the box 
and 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 you win some and you lose some, but it's okay. You know, most of us, Mark, we we don't want to roll the dice unless we think we're going to win. We don't want to make the big ask. We don't want to reach out to somebody to ask them to do something. But he taught me, what do you have to lose? And I'm so grateful to him for that, that, that he taught me how to think outside the box and that it's okay if you don't always win. So that's number one. Number two definitely is he had a servant's heart. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of his favorite quotes, it's a quote on which he found it, points of light, is that any definition of a successful life must include serving others. He gave back to his country, to his state, to his community until almost the day he died. And, you know, you just, it's a great lesson for all of us to learn. If all of us gave as much as George Bush did, we really would be a better place. Just mm. to care about your neighbors and your community and pitch in and help. But he also taught me that life is meant to be fun. The central market story just shows the fun that they could have had in everyday life. It's an amazing story. <laughs> it's so, it, I, I so love exemplifies. that you love that story. They just he they both lived life with joy and they just like to have fun. And they like to go out. They like to go to ball games. They like to meet people for drinks. They lived life to the fullest. And then sometimes they like to stay home, eat cheese and crackers and sweet potatoes, and watch ER reruns. <laughs> <laughs> the book is The Man I Knew, The Amazing Story of George H.W. Bush's Post-Presidency, which I highly recommend. And the author is my dear friend, Jean Becker. Jean, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. I could talk to you forever. Thank you for, thank you for loving the sweet potato story. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> my thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare. And as always, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.